that, uh, that we can respond to this morning. And so I'll respond to those questions here this morning, um, and, then, uh, and then we'll close with communion and, and worship songs. So a little bit different. I hope you can stay with me. Um, hope you can track with it as we, as we go through. I was sitting in my office on Friday <clears throat> trying to finish up this message and I was thinking through what else I could do to prepare for such a, a strange kind of Sunday morning. Mostly I was really just having regrets about what made me think this was a good idea at the time. <laughs> Why did I think taking live questions was going to be... Anyway, um, the more I thought about it, the more, the more I felt that, you know, it may not be a, a good idea in the sense that uh, it's, it's difficult, it's a challenge, it could be awkward. Uh, I certainly won't have answers to all the things that are asked. But I think it is really appropriate. I mean, if we're going to do a, a series on doubt, I think that it actually fits very well with, with the content of the messages. It seems almost strange or kind of counterproductive for me to have a series on doubt that has kind of as, as its core this idea that asking questions and wrestling with doubts within a community is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. In fact, I, I would even say it's a necessary thing as a part of our faith. And then to just kind of present it and go sit down. And not to have any sort of mechanism, any way to facilitate those questions at the time. So uh, again, a few, few more rules of engagement. This is not a performance, all right? I'm not doing this because I, I think I have the answers. That is certainly not the case. I'm not doing this because I think it's somehow trendy for churches to do something like this. I don't really have much interest in that. I'm doing it because I, I honestly think that it's a helpful thing for our community. Because it fits with that content. And because, well, because... Sometimes change itself destabilizes us, right? Knocks us off kilter a little bit. Challenges us to think through our faith in a different way. To be confronted with a new routine, a new rhythm. So I ask that you be charitable <laughs> with your questions. Uh, be generous in how they're asked. Make sure that they are questions, please. Uh, it's hard to respond to kind of loaded statements. And just, uh, just a point of, of procedure as well. I, I won't address them all. Um, that's not because I don't think they're all good questions, but simply because of time today, but, but also because I think some things are more appropriate from up front, and I'll try to find ways to respond even if it's not up front, uh, a full response. All right, so uh, let's do a little intro to the, to the series, this, these three weeks on doubt, all right? I'm going to do that by reading from Matthew 28, 16 and 17, what's up on the screen. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? They, they saw a resurrected guy. 
This guy was dead. They knew that. And some worshipped. Some fell down. Some knew that this must be the Lord. But still, some doubted. Well, we only have um, three weeks to explore this topic of doubt. I think my clicker is dead now that I... Greg, you're on. I'll try to click when I need... Let's go one more. All right. Yep. We only have three weeks to explore this topic of doubt. So uh, we've divided the weeks up this way. And again, it's somewhat arbitrary, but I think there is some logic to it. So this week we're going to focus on... Go back maybe one, Greg. Sorry. We'll focus on doubting the gospel. Um, Next week we'll address self-doubt. And the final week uh, will be kind of the biggie, I think. That is doubting the character of God. I want to take each of these weeks very seriously. There's a, a certain sense that these topics ought to be addressed with a certain sobriety. However, I I don't want the whole series to feel heavy and to feel kind of, ugh, when you come each week, right? So we're going to try to find ways. And again, the question, that that sort of mechanism of asking questions and feedback is one of the ways that we're going to try to take things a little bit more lightly. So we're going to navigate through that. Uh, This week, we have doubting the gospel, which is really about intellectual doubts, right? And then next week we have uh, self-doubt. And that's really about personal doubts, right? And then that final week, that week about doubting the character of God is about divine doubts. So intellectual doubts, personal doubts, divine doubts. There's going to be overlap, like I said, Uh, They're not cut and dry between each of them. Uh, There certainly is going to be overlap, but we'll we'll do our best to kind of keep each in their own category. All right, let's get started. Well, it seemed appropriate uh, to begin the series with the most famous doubter of all, right? Doubting Thomas, the Apostle Thomas. So let's read together John 20, 24 to 29. Uh, I'll read the text but you're going to read the part of Thomas, all right? Sorry for typecasting, but... All right, it says, uh, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hands and put them in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas here is called Didymus, which literally means twin. We actually don't know that much about Thomas. We're told in sources outside of Scripture that he later became a great missionary to India. In fact, even today, the Syriac church in India is called the Mar Thoma Church in honor of that heritage. And the legend is that uh, Thomas was actually killed in India. He was killed because uh, of a decree of one of the kings that he be pierced with many lances. It's a pretty terrifying way to die. I've got a picture, uh, Greg, if you can move forward uh, of that. So here's where we're going to go with Thomas today, all right? The first is uh, we're going to explore whether there is room for doubt in faith. And then we're going to talk about how we might handle doubts in a healthy way. And then finally, we'll look at doubt as a gift to faith. So is there room for doubt in faith? How we might handle doubt in a healthy way? And then finally, doubt as gift. Is there room for doubt in faith? Well, we don't actually know if Thomas was a twin or not. His name in Hebrew uh, and Aramaic, actually, both, is similar to the word for twin, toem, in Hebrew. Um, And so this is why probably he has this nickname Didymus, which is the Greek word for twin. Regardless of whether or not he was a twin, there kind of arose this tradition within the church that he was called the twin because he is kind of a paragon of two people, all right? So he is, he's a twin like you and I are a twin. That is, within us, within all of us, there is one who doubts and there is one who believes or confesses. We are like Thomas. We wrestle with doubts And then we have moments of profound assurance in our faith, right? My Lord and my God. I was reflecting on this idea earlier this week. And one morning, I was thinking about it as I was walking to the church. And I I couldn't help but kind of be stunned. uh, Something I had never noticed before. But as spring has sprung, it was very evident that in our own church lot, we have this tree. If you go out the doors, it's, it's just toward the the street. I'm not sure who did this, but clearly someone at some point very early on in this tree's life um, grafted two trees together. And it, it really makes for a beautiful and very stunning picture of what we're talking about here. So I took this this photo, this idea that within the one trunk, it comes from a single source and yet There are these two things that are living within it. These beautiful burgundy leaves and these these white blossoms on the, the green leaves. It's this great image of what the church has seen in the twin. The Apostle Thomas. The doubting Thomas or the confessing Thomas. Which one? 
being authentic about the reality of doubt. Being authentic about the reality of doubt means that we have to be open about doubts. It also means that we can recognize that that God has actually made us more complex than we often recognize or often want to admit. We're not, you know, one-dimensional characters in some superhero movie. There's no good or bad, right? Within us, there's this mix. There's this, this twin nature. That is to say, we regularly profess faith in the midst of doubt. In fact, faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's the continuing to hold on even when real questions are present. So I want to take this uh, just a step further because I think often people do assume that faith and doubt are somehow opposites. But these things, uh, they they shouldn't be contrasted. They're They're not of the same kind. It's It's a little bit like apples and oranges, all right? To say that you either have faith or doubt is to confuse them. It's not like the more faith that you have, the less doubts you have, right? I mean, think about this for a moment. If if you're wrestling with intellectual doubts, can you still have faith in God? Of course. And if you really think about it, Most of us would describe that faith that has the battle scars of doubts as a strong faith, right? That the presence of doubt in an act of faith actually suggests that that faith is robust, that it's strong, that it's able to deal with it, that it can accommodate doubts. And so the opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is maybe something like certainty or proof. But then we have to deal with this scripture that's up on the screen, right? Hebrews 11.1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain, certain of what we do not see. Sure seems like faith and doubt are opposites here for the writer of Hebrews. Faith is described as assurance and certainty. But I think it's important to go on in this chapter in Hebrews because uh, the writer lays out this kind of hall of faith or hall of fame of faith from the Old Testament characters. These are kind of the great heroes of the faith and of faith itself. When we, when we look through this list, what do we see? It's really interesting. If you've ever, ever taken time to look at who's mentioned in this hall of faith. Let's have a quick look at some of them. Let's start with um, Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarah before. They're both mentioned in this list. Yet they aren't, aren't they the ones who laughed at God, scoffing that, when he promised them a son at age 99, we can't believe that. I doubt it, right? Oh, and even before that, when there was a famine in the land and they were forced to go down to Egypt, right? That's what this, this image is about. 
what did they do? They didn't trust God. They doubted that God was going to keep them secure and deliver them. And so they told the Pharaoh that Sarai was actually Abram's sister, not wife. They had to scheme a plot to make sure that they were protected. Okay, what about uh, his grandson, Jacob? Jacob's on the list. Wait, isn't Jacob the one who tricked his brother, who, with the help of his mother, tricked his own father for the birthright of the firstborn? Isn't that Jacob? Doesn't that say something a little bit about his level of trust and doubt that God would provide? Okay, let's move on a little bit. What about, um, what about Moses? Greg, you can scroll through these. I got a picture for each of them. Wasn't Moses the one who doubted God's plan so much that he refused to be the speaker that God asked him to, to be? Right? He said, go to Pharaoh. I'm going to deliver your people. Moses said, oh no. <laughs> not me. I doubt it. I, I doubt it. I am not good with words. So much so, he doubted God so much that God was forced to choose his brother Aaron to speak on his behalf. Moses is on the list. Or even later, there's this account of Moses disobeying God by striking the rock for water to come forth. We're not sure entirely what's involved in this story, but there seems, again, to be a bit of doubt that God would provide. Moses thought he had to take things into his own hands. Let's keep moving. Gideon. Gideon's on the list. Gideon's on the list, but isn't Gideon the one who just wouldn't quite believe God that he was going to deliver the army? I'll put this fleece out, right? You remember this story? And then God does what he asks him to do, and he says, you know what, maybe let's try that again. I doubt it. Maybe that was coincidence, right? Gideon's on the list. Or Barak, Barak doubted the promises of God to the degree that he would only go to battle if Deborah went with him, right? I doubt it, he says. Not me. I'm not doing this. Give me a good woman, then I'll go. Or what about one of the final names? David. I mean, we only need to read through the Psalms of David to understand the, the deep and conflicted nature of his doubts and his faith. So you see, even the faith of these great figures, these hall of faith inductees who walked with God in the Old Testament, is marked by doubt. It's incredible to think of this list as a kind of hall of fame of faith, and then to really explore the amount of doubt that was displayed in each of their lives and the narratives that were told in the Bible. And so it seems to me that the certainty of what we do not see, that is from that Hebrews 11:1 1 verse, it cannot mean the complete absence of doubt. Instead, I think it's, it's more about a stubborn refusal to let doubt derail our faith completely. To continue walking in faith even as we wrestle with doubt. 
I think that's, that's the clearest thing in my mind that emerges from Hebrews 11 as we look at these figures. Faith is not an empirically measurable fact. Of course, a healthy faith deals with empirically verifiable things, things that we can say, we know this for sure. But that's not all that a healthy faith considers. It also takes into consideration the very real doubts that we have. The hall of faith is certainly not marked by those who were without doubt, but it's filled with those whose faith was strengthened in and through doubt. And so, yes, we can say there is room for doubt in faith. Okay, how do we deal with doubts in a healthy way? Well, first and foremost, um, let's not sensationalize or romanticize doubt, all right? I have a a younger friend who regularly warns me that actually the pendulum has swung too far, she thinks. That now being a doubter in a church is kind of hip, right? All the cool kids are doing it. It's almost like we can't share our hope in God without also talking about, oh, just how much doubt I have about it too, right? So I want to be careful in how we present this. But I also want you to know that if your faith is strong and and you aren't wrestling with a lot of intellectual doubts, don't feel like you have to make stuff up. (laughs) Doubts often come in waves. And there are times of calm in between these waves where it's really important to build our faith up. And so dwelling on doubt, dwelling in an unhealthy way, especially when when it's kind of an avoidable obsession because it's trendy, because it's in vogue, that's not a healthy way to deal with doubt. The next thing is actually modeled by the Apostle Thomas. You see, despite Thomas's skepticism, despite his refusal to believe that Jesus had been resurrected. He wanted proof, right? He wanted tactile, tangible proof. He wanted to not only see, he wanted to touch. Despite that, he remained faithful to the call of Jesus on his life. That is, the call to be a part of a community of believers. I think this this sort of little thing, well, it's not a little thing. It, It shouldn't be overlooked, He was honest with his doubts. He was honest with his struggle to accept the resurrection of a dead man. I mean, can you blame him in some ways? Less than a week ago, I saw them take him away. I saw him hung on a cross. I saw him buried in a grave. Can you blame him? But he refused to abandon the community of faith. He continued meeting with those whose faith was confirmed by their experience of the resurrected Lord. See, doubts are not sinful. We don't address or deal with doubts in the same way that we do sin. Doubting is is a natural condition of being in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Because we're constantly lied to. 
We're deceived by even those who are close to us. We're even tricked by our own perceptions sometimes, aren't we? And so doubt is a form of honesty. But in order to not be overwhelmed by these doubts, we need to remain firm in the call that Jesus has on each one of our lives. That is, to remain in a community of believers. And so in order to deal with doubts in a healthy way, we can't allow them to be a dead end. Allowing intellectual doubts to, to go unexplored, to sit inactive in our minds, to fester, is a profoundly unhealthy way to deal with doubts. Ultimately, that sort of intellectual laziness is a death sentence for faith. Doubts are okay. But ignoring doubts is like playing with fire. Maybe actually the opposite. That's sort of the wrong image, playing with fire, isn't it? Ignoring our doubts is, is like neglecting the fire that is within us. You see, the flame of faith will soon be extinguished. It will be put out, and we will be left in the dark, in the cold. We'll be alone. Dealing with doubts in a healthy way means that we have to exercise those doubts. We have to keep our minds active, especially when we're talking about intellectual doubts. And actually, the Bible tells us that, that this sort of thing, this exercise of the mind, is not only a healthy thing, it's a part of worship. We read this in Romans 12, that the renewing of our minds, the transformation, that in using our minds in study of God and God's word is actually all about bringing glory to God. Again, it's, it's not about dismissing doubts. It's not about getting rid of them, but it, it's also not about allowing them to be a roadblock that forces you into a U-turn. So get out of the car, explore the roadblock, strategize about what might work to get through that roadblock, ask others for help who have breached that roadblock, stay in community, and don't allow yourself to get lazy. Do the hard work of exploring and challenging those intellectual doubts. Finally, the gift of doubt. I love the words of Isaiah 1.18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Friends, our faith is not irrational, but neither is it a simplistic faith. It's tough. The Christian faith has always been one of, of deep and sustained intellect. In fact, the, the, the logos or the word that we hear of in John 1, remember? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. That word is logos. And the idea of logos 
is the term that was used by the Greeks to talk about order, rationality, reasoning, how everything kind of hangs together in the world. It's amazing to think about that word being used to describe Jesus, the one who comes in the flesh. And so we're given the invitation to reason with the one who is reason himself. It's in this context of a personal relationship with God that we don't have to be anxious about doubts. Because doubts are a natural part of reasoning together. Especially when we're reasoning together with someone who is so much greater than us. We're not reasoning among equals. We don't always see how things fit together. The evidence that we compile is often incomplete. and doesn't add up. But doubt, when it's kept within that relationship, when we are committed to reason with God, can be a wonderful gift that drives our faith deeper. Minister and novelist Frederick Buchner has said that doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I like to think of doubts as, as kind of the dark recesses of my mind that have yet to see the light of God's revelation. My doubts have alerted me to something. Something that right now is beyond me. But in which the Lord can, and I trust will, reveal himself. It doesn't necessarily make those dark corners less frightening. But it does offer us a different perspective, doesn't it? Allowing for even us to give thanks for doubts as a gift. And so when the Lord shows himself, in whatever way that might be on the other side of doubt, we're often moved in ways that are even surprising to us. Thomas's confession is the most powerful, the most explicit, the most forceful profession of the divinity of Jesus in all four Gospels. No one says it as bluntly and clearly as Thomas does. My Lord and my God. It's interesting to me that, you know, he, he says in his doubts, he doesn't want to just see Jesus, but he, he needs to touch him, right? Unless I put my hands. But nowhere in the text does Thomas touch him. Jesus appears, and Thomas falls. It's immediate. My Lord and my God. You see, it doesn't come from a lack of doubt. It comes from God revealing himself through those doubts. We're confronted by truth that's not easily accepted, that arrests our attention And then skepticism is no longer an option, right? When Christ invites Thomas to touch and see, the very possibility of skepticism is ruled out. Thomas either needs to reject this reality and receive it and confess it for what it is, my Lord and my God, or reject it outright. 
Let me close with this. Mark 9, it's one of my favorite scriptures. We meet a father who's at his wit's end. His son is possessed with an evil spirit that has been convulsing him. The father tells Jesus that it has been trying to kill him. And he's had it since he was young. He doesn't know what to do. And in fact, he even came to Jesus' disciples. And they couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus tells the man, after he asks, is there any way? Is it possible? Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. The man's response as Jesus heals his son is a wonderful image of what we're trying to get at. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Doubt can be one of the great accelerants of faith. It can be a kind of chemical catalyst for us to stretch further, to dive deeper, to revise our understanding of who God is and what God is up to. So yes, let's not sensationalize doubt. But let's also not hide it or worry that somehow it's inconsistent or antithetical to faith. Let's stay together in community, open about our own doubts, ready to journey in and through them together. Of the ushers, come forward and collect the offering. Remember, you can put your questions in the offering plates, and then I'll have a word of prayer before the worship team comes back up. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We thank you for the challenging gift of doubt. Not because it makes it easy, but because it drives us deeper and further toward you. Help this be a community that fosters openness and charity. And now as our gifts are taken up, we give you thanks for the blessings that you've given us. We ask that these offerings are used for the benefit of your kingdom, that we put them to work wisely in a discerning way, and that the gifts of those with grateful hearts is a blessing to them and to the rest of us in our community. Amen. I was looking down. Usually I get the little head nod so I know I can come up. All right. Well, you guys put me to the test, that's for sure. I didn't know what to expect. 
I kind of thought there maybe be one or two questions, but uh, more than a dozen questions. So we're not going to get through them all, but um, we'll, we'll get a start. And we'll see here. Too many things up here. There's some great questions, really great questions. Uh, I wish I could try to address them all, uh, but I'm going to keep an eye on the clock here and make sure that uh, we don't go over. Well, the first question <coughs> that I wanted to address, <coughs> sorry, was a question that um, says, is doubting God just not understanding God's timing? Or, you know, is it not being in God's time? I thought that was a really good question. And really, um, obviously, someone's thought about this quite a bit. Um, but I, I did want to just make a, a distinction here that <clears throat> what we're talking about this morning is intellectual doubts. And so when, when I um, think about what it means to have intellectual doubts, doubts about the faith, the veracity, the truth, um, the historicity of our faith, I think actually the way I would try to frame it rather than timing, and certainly timing is, is a part of it, and the, the next two weeks we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, but I would want to frame it primarily as one of perspective rather than timing. Um, and, and so to say, not to explain it away again, not to say that, you know, all, all doubts are just because we have this very limited human perspective and, and God is, you know, omniscient and he's everywhere and he knows everything. And so, of course, we're going to doubt. We won't understand all the things of God. It's not, it's not to explain it away, but it is to say that uh, at the root of doubt, of intellectual doubt especially, is this idea that we are limited, we are finite. That my, my capacity for what I can take in is very, very small. Um, have you ever met, like, someone really smart? You know, I have one of these in my family. Have you ever met one of these people? It's kind of like, it, well, it's very humbling, first of all. But you also feel like your perspective is just so limited. You know, they'll come out, they'll say something, and you'll be like, Oh, you know, never thought about it that way. How I was looking at it had blinders on it, right? And think about that, not in, in sort of a, a gradation, right? Not in sort of like one step higher than me and that sort of thing, but a whole different being, right? God is not just, I use this with, with students that I teach, God is not simply the biggest kid on the block, right? He's not just that much bigger than us and more smart than us and greater than us. He is entirely different than us. And so the whole idea of doubt and perspective is a, is a really difficult one to wrestle through, but the reality is certainly there. So I kind of sidestepped the first question. I guess I'm 0 for 1. Um, we, will, we will pick that up again, though. That's a great thought, this idea of timing. Um, so next question I, I wanted to pick up was, uh, why is it easier to doubt than to have faith? <laughs> it's a great question too. Um, well, let me tell you a story first. So I have a friend uh, who also has a PhD in theology and teaches, and uh, he was on a panel once, 
And they were asking kind of personal stories of how did you get to where you are. And someone said to them, um, why, why seven years of grad school? You know, why you put yourself through all of this, an undergrad and master's degree, a PhD, and talking about theology and spirituality. Why do you do all that? And he said, uh, without even hesitating, he said, you know, my best friend in junior high once asked me how I could believe that a man came back to life. How my faith could be rooted in the reality that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He said, it terrified me so bad that I didn't have a response to that. That it has motivated and driven me ever since. I think the truth is that it's easier to have doubt than faith. Not simply because we're bombarded with it. We're trying to sort through all the data, all the experience, all the everything that we get every day, but also because it's hard work to come up to that roadblock and to get out of the car. It's easier to pull you. I don't want to go there. That takes effort. That takes energy. That means that I have to actually step out and do something, talk to people. Read something. Listen to something. It takes work. Faith is, is not simply something that is just a given that will always be there. We talk about faith as a gift from God, and that's true. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't take work on our behalf. So that would be my short answer for why it's easier to have doubt than faith. But By the way, I think... And I say this very carefully, but I do think I want to make mention of it this morning, that actually this week, and I actually had a bigger piece of this in the sermon, and I took it out. Um, but this week, the idea of intellectual doubts, doubts that come from believing the truth or, or the veracity of the gospel, are often used in our culture, um, how should I say this? They're often used as a front. Um, that's not, that's not across the board, and I'm not trying to make light of it either. But I, I do think that sometimes people will use intellectual doubts because they have other issues going on. I think I do that, <laughs> all right? I think that's a very natural thing to do. I think particularly for, for my peers that I've engaged with, that I know well, that are my friends who have uh, been in faith and have left the faith, and they'll say something to me about, uh, oh, you know, I've been reading a lot of the New Atheists. Something like that, right? And, and when I say, oh, I've read them too. You know, have, have you read David Bentley Hart in response to them? Well, no. <laughs> you know. And it's this idea that it's easy to kind of throw out intellectual doubt as a reason for not being committed in your faith. Actually, I think sometimes it's a subterfuge. It's, a, it's, a, it's the distraction noodle in craft dinner commercials, you know? People will point to it. It's easy to point to, right? And in fact, it almost engenders this kind of, um, a little bit of intellectual superiority, right? Oh, I can't believe that stuff. But they really haven't gotten into that stuff, right? And so it's easier rather than saying, hey, I've been hurt. Hey, I, I have serious self-doubt. I, I have 
serious doubts about the character of God. I can't make sense of this. I, I think that actually goes to a lot of the questions that came in this morning too, excuse me, <clears throat> was that I'm going to defer a lot of them to week three. There's a reason I said it's the biggie week, right? How do we make sense of bad things happening? How do we make sense of suffering? All these types of things. Anyway, that's a longer answer than I wanted to give. Uh, maybe I'll just do one more here. Uh, oof, tough to choose between these two. Okay, I'll do both. I'll do them really quick, I, I promise. Is it still okay to, to put out a fleece? That's a great question. I mentioned Gideon uh, this morning. To test big decisions uh, that you're doubting. All right, here's my very short answer, and I, I want to keep it short. My short answer is yes. Um, that's, not, that's not a universal answer, and, and I've certainly heard teachers and pastors say no. Okay, so it's not something that's across the board. Um, my, my take on it is that that's biblical. I think we do have to be very careful about trying to trap God, trying to manipulate God to our uh, desires. And so I would caution doing that. I don't think that's the first place we go when we're having doubts. Uh, but I also don't want to rule that out. And again, I think there's biblical precedence for, for doing something like that. So again, I would say what's a healthy way to deal with doubt? Healthy way is to stay in community. To stay in a community of believers. To be open about our doubts. And to really explore them. To push them further. Uh, but I wouldn't want to rule something like that out. Okay, finally, just very quickly. Uh, what, what's a good way to talk about uh, doubt? Doubt that I have about the, life, uh, the purpose of life. Um, I just want to make mention of that because I simply want to say anytime <laughs> my door is open all of our pastoral staff we're here come and talk to us I'll buy you a coffee uh, we're here it's not just the pastors that are here we're here together we have life groups that we do and we share life together. And that's a perfect venue to, to wrestle with and through some of those questions. I, so I just encourage you, don't, don't hold it in. Don't leave it there, but explore it further. All right. Let's move to a time of communion to end our service together this morning. When the elements of communion are passed this morning, uh, I want you to take some time to reflect on the gift of this bread and this cup. We're told that they're mysteries, that there's no way we can plumb the depths of what's going on at this table, uh, that these are gifts for us, the body and the blood of Jesus. And so in what can feel like sometimes a sea of doubt Sometimes an act of faith is what is needed. And receiving the bread and the cup, receiving something that we can never fully comprehend is the most important thing that we can do in that sea of doubt. So take and eat and feed on Christ in faith and be thankful. Not only for the tangible signs of grace, but for the gift of doubt that drives us deeper into the mystery.
deeper into a faith that cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you bow with me? Father, we're humbled to come to your table. You are the host of this meal, and you are the meal itself. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit upon this cup and this bread, that you bless it, and may it be for us a source of grace that strengthens our faith. May we hold together this unity. May we not break apart your body. Let us receive it, not in the absence of doubt, but knowing that our doubts drive us to you. Receive us now and strengthen us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.